Hello and welcome to Pin Drop World's News, the show where each week we spin the globe, drop a pin on a different country, and take a look at the big issues facing it. I'm AJ Camacho. Here to guide us through today's show as we explore the news surrounding Serbia. Specifically, Serbia's recent election, which was criticized as rigged, the country's dispute over Kosovo, a land which on this map is recognized as part of Serbia, but is very much in dispute, and Serbian foreign relations more broadly. We'll be hearing from Michael Polt, the former U.S. ambassador to Serbia, and as always, we'll conclude with the panel to discuss the news and what our guest had to say. But before we get into the news, it's country profile time. We don't expect you to know everything about Serbia. We certainly don't, even after a week of heavy research. So here are some fast facts. Serbia's capital is Belgrade. Its currency is the Serbian dinar. The official language there is Serbian. Its government is a parliamentary republic. Their prime minister is Anna Brnabic. Its population is about 7 million people and its dialing code is plus 381. And a fun fact, Serbia is really good at water polo. The country has won two gold medals in water polo at the Summer Olympics since its independence in 2006, and has won three more as part of Yugoslavia before that. Together, it has more gold medals in the event than any other country, except Hungary. Now, for a rundown of the country's history and politics. Our journey begins in the medieval era, when the Serbian kingdom emerged as a regional power in the Balkans under the Nemanjic dynasty. The Battle of Kosovo in 1389 is etched in history, symbolizing Serbia's resistance against the Ottoman Empire. Although the ultimate result was the integration of Serbia into the Ottoman realm, the 19th century brought significant changes in this regard. The first Serbian uprising in 1804 marked the beginning of Serbia's fight for independence from Ottoman rule. The subsequent decades saw the gradual expansion of the Serbian state, culminating in the establishment of the Kingdom of Serbia in 1882. The 20th century was marked by turbulent events. Serbia played a key role in the formation of the Kingdom of Serbs, Croats and Slovenes in 1918, later known as Yugoslavia. The complex dynamics within Yugoslavia, however, led to tensions, and the country went through various iterations, from the kingdom to socialist Yugoslavia under Josip Broz Tito. The breakup of Yugoslavia in the early 1990s was a pivotal moment for Serbia. The Yugoslav Wars ensued, and Serbia found itself at the center of regional conflicts. The leadership under Slobodan Milosevic faced international condemnation for alleged war crimes and human rights abuses. The year 2000 marked a turning point. For the past two years, the Serbian group Otpor, meaning resistance in Serbian, had engaged in peaceful protest against Milosevic and his regime. Now, with support from neighboring Montenegro, the Serbian Orthodox Church, and even the United States government, Otpor and opposition politicians had enough momentum to achieve real change. 
the bulldozer revolution saw the ousting of Milosevic from power, and Serbia embarked on a path of political and economic reform. The country transitioned into the State Union of Serbia and Montenegro, which eventually dissolved in 2006, leaving Serbia as an independent state. In recent years, Serbia has navigated the complexities of post-conflict recovery, EU accession talks, and managing its relationship with the breakaway province of Kosovo. The issue of Kosovo remains a significant factor in Serbian politics and international relations, and you can rest assured we will be addressing it shortly. Politically, Serbia operates as a parliamentary republic. The Serbian Progressive Party, also known as SNS, led by Aleksandar Vucic, has been a dominant force in recent elections, steering the country through economic challenges and diplomatic complexities. Now let's begin our discussion of the big issues, starting with the December 2023 elections in Serbia. Earlier on in 2023, Serbian President Aleksandar Vucic resigned as the head of his Serbian Progressive Party, which again is often known by its Serbian acronym, SNS. Several months later, his government called a snap parliamentary election. Despite his resignation as party leader and the elections being for parliament only, not president, the elections were still largely seen as a referendum on Vucic's presidency. Things did not look too good for Vucic's SNS on the eve of the elections either. The SNS was averaging around 38% in the polls, higher than any other party, but a big blow from the outright majority it was able to enjoy at the time, and a blow that would have drastically hampered its power and possibly cost the SNS its government. Vucic and the SNS's declining popularity stemmed largely from high inflation that peaked at around 8% last year, and two mass shootings that shook the country. These factors spawned combined right-wing and left-wing protests against Vucic that demanded greater freedom of the press, among other demands. For context, Freedom House classifies Serbia as only partly free, primarily due to the SNS's influence on the country's media. To the surprise of many, the SNS massively outperformed the polls in official election results, scoring 48% of the popular vote. That's about 10 points ahead than what the polls were projecting. No sooner, however, were the results announced than the opposition Serbia Against Violence Coalition claimed that the election was riddled with fraud, including through the busing of ethnic Serbs from Bosnia into Serbia to vote in the election and vote buying vote pressuring, and various other problems. The opposition's claims were supported by several NGOs observing the elections. The organization CRTA released a preliminary report in December corroborating the opposition's claims. Quote, photographic or video evidence was collected of large-scale organized migration of voters from within other regions in Serbia and from abroad. CRTA observers recorded several logistical centers from where the voters were sent to polling stations across Belgrade. Instances of voter transportation, supervised voting, or irregularities that point to potential voter identity manipulations were identified at 14% of all polling stations in Belgrade. 
end quote. In response to these reports of fraud, protests broke out across the country, with especially strong ones occurring in Belgrade that threatened to storm the capital's city hall. Many Serbian politicians are demanding the official results be overturned, and even that the European Union intervene and probe the election's conduct. European and American officials have both expressed their displeasure with the irregularities in the election, and some EU Commission officials even pointed out that election integrity was necessary for any prospective EU member. That's important because Serbia has been a candidate for EU membership for over a decade now, and it seems that December's elections risk regressing Belgrade's journey to join Brussels. But more on that in a bit. Let's now focus on the second big issue of today's episode, Kosovo. At the southern end of Serbia, bordering Albania, lies the land of Kosovo. Notably, Kosovans are 95% ethnic Albanians, while only about 1.5% ethnic Serbs. Similarly, the land is about 95% Muslim and only about 4% Christian. After conquests in 1912 during the First Balkan War, a young Serbia claimed the land of Kosovo. After the 20th century, when both were members of Yugoslavia, the issue died down, but re-emerged when an independent Serbia, led by Milosevic, made clear it would continue to claim Kosovo and cracked down on that territory's autonomy. After intervention from NATO, Serbia granted greater autonomy back to Kosovo, but the Kosovans wanted more and, in 2008, declared their independence. Ever since Kosovo's recognition as a state independent from Serbia, well, that's been a topic that's remained a huge point of contention with the Western camp of global geopolitics, North America and Europe, generally recognizing Kosovo as independent, although there are exceptions to that. By contrast, the East, including Russia and China, typically consider Kosovo to be a rightful part of Serbia that is in rebellion. Tensions flared in 2023 when Kosovo insisted that even ethnic Serbs in the territory would need to use distinctly Kosovan license plates for their cars and Serbian license plates would no longer be accepted. These tensions sparked protests and even violence. A pair of shootings last year saw both ethnically Serbian gunmen and Kosovan police killed. Municipal elections in June were boycotted by Kosovo's Serbian population, allowing ethnically Albanian politicians to be elected in Serbian-majority towns. Kosovo's Prime Minister, Albin Kurti, claimed that the subsequent mob violence that broke out in response to the elections was not about Serbian people, but about attempts by Serbia to exert influence over Kosovo. On the other hand, we have these mobs. It's not about Serbian people. It's about certain orchestrated violent mobs who are there to destabilize Kosovo and to play for the larger hegemony yeah. of uh, official Belgrade. You know, official Belgrade is in search for time machine. Sometimes they want to go prior to the year 2008 when we declared independence right. and sometimes prior to the year 1999 when we got liberated. But there is no such thing as time machine. We have to look forward and future is European Union, democracy, human rights, rule of law, NATO. Now, of course, 
Vucic, the Serbian government, and even certain officials within the United States and the EU were critical of Kosovo's decision to install the elected officials in Serbian majority areas who were largely Albanians. These are areas where the voter turnout rate was extremely low, sometimes in the single digits. But take note of what Kurti says at the end of that interview, talking about a future in the EU and in NATO. That is a key argument to many in Kosovo and across Serbia for that matter. If both were to join the European Union, the subsequent removal of border crossings, adoption of a common currency, etc., would make Kosovo and Serbia close enough to being the same country to satisfy Serbia and independent enough to assuage Kosovo, or at least that's how the argument goes. Not everyone shares this view, of course, with prominent Serbian politicians across several parties demanding accession to the European Union on the condition that Kosovo remains in Serbia. In the past several months, the situation appears to have calmed down from its 2023 peak, but it is obvious to anyone that the final status of Kosovo will still need to be resolved someday. Now let's return to that topic that's been teased out a few times for our final big issue, which is Serbian foreign policy. Serbia is in a position that longtime listeners and viewers of Pindrop will recognize. A small country geographically close to both Western and Eastern major powers. Serbia, therefore, has plotted a course similar to that of Mongolia, Nepal, and others. A third way that seeks good relations with both geopolitical camps. It should be noted that this is not just a pragmatic matter as it might be seen in the perspective of Mongolia or Nepal, but one deeply rooted in the history of the Serbian people. For centuries, the Russian Empire claimed to be the defender of all Slavic peoples, including the Serbs. Indeed, World War I started because Austria-Hungary was attacking Serbia, and Russia stepped in to defend the Serbs. Equally, Serbia today is much closer to Europe and sees a lot to gain in the economic and mobility benefits of EU membership. Officially, President Vucic and the SNS are in favor of EU membership, but this has not stopped many decisions and statements that sound quite friendly to Russia and China. In October, for example, Serbia signed a free trade agreement with China. More notably, Vucic's government has professed repeated neutrality over the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Serbia refused for a long time to sanction Russia, but has also reduced its purchases of Russian oil and gas, seen as a measure to appease the European Union. Similarly, while Serbia has at times voiced opposition to supplying Ukraine with weaponry, leaked Pentagon documents did indicate that it secretly supplied weapons to Ukraine itself. Serbians themselves have had a change of heart on the matter as well. In the 2000s, polls consistently showed that a majority of Serbians wanted their country to join the EU. Yet today, that enthusiasm is gone, with polls indicating that the country is split roughly into thirds. About one-third want EU membership, about one-third don't, and another third are apathetic or undecided about the matter. At the soonest, 
Serbia could join the EU in 2030, and it will be interesting to see how their efforts to obtain membership progress or perhaps regress in the coming years. That does it for our discussion of the history and politics of Serbia. We're going to go next to our guest interview with Ambassador Michael Polt. And after that, I'll see you again with Nick and Diego, my co-producers for the Pindrop panel. Hello, folks, and welcome to Pindrop World News. I'm AJ Camacho, and I'm speaking right now with Ambassador Michael C. Polt. He is the Arizona State University Ambassador in Residence and a Professor of Practice. He is also the co-founder uh, of Leadership Diplomacy in the National Security Lab. And most importantly, for the purposes of our conversation today, he served as the United States Ambassador to Serbia. Ambassador Polt, thank you very much for joining Pindrop today. It's a pleasure. Nice to be here with you. So I want to start with, I think, the reason that a lot of folks might have been paying attention to Serbia uh, in this last month, which is its elections that occurred in December. These were snap parliamentary elections, not presidential elections. Uh, and we saw a result that outperformed the polls in terms of the incumbent SNS party and Vucic receiving a higher percentage than what was expected. And it was alleged later by the opposition, Ser Serbians Against Violence, as well as various international observers, that these were not free and fair elections, that there was a degree of some somewhere between voter pressuring, some alleged busing in ethnic Serbs from the Republika Srpska in Bosnia and Herzegovina. So I just want to hear what your take is of these elections. Well, I concur with the uh, OSCE observers and other international uh, reliable <coughs> uh, participants in uh, observing the election that uh, there were a number of reported flaws in the overall process and in the way the election was conducted. It is uh, clear also from the reaction by Mr. Vucic and, and his, uh, his government that uh, not allowing the uh, examination of the alleged irregularities uh, and, and uh, in fact, uh, uh, attacking, if you wish, the observers, not in, in a verbal sense, not in a physical sense, uh, suggests that uh, this was anything but a free and fair process that uh, freely expressed the wishes of the Serbian people. Mm -hmm. uh, and the follow-up question to that is, to what degree do you think that these actions that were taken, uh, this corruption of the election, would have overturned the eventual result. Polling did suggest that the SNS was in the lead, if not by a substantial of a margin uh, relative to their parties and coalitions. Does it appear that this could have been substantial enough to have changed the results of the parliamentary election? Or does it not appear to have been that uh, massive from your understanding? You know, that level of detail is hard for us on the outside to determine. I mean, <clears throat> we don't really know uh, whether there was enough, whether what was the level of corruption that would have actually changed the eventual outcome. And it's, and to me, to be very frank, having uh, uh, worked with uh, our Serbian uh, friends uh, over the years that I was there, <clears throat> that's not really the most important part. Mm -hmm. I think the important part is that the Serbian people deserve a free and democratic <clears throat> and fair societal context for their for for projecting their future into a better future 
and in a, a, a Euro-Atlantic uh, uh, integration process, which has been in multiple ways discussed and expressed amongst the Serbian people, in order for them to get there, they need to have a level playing field. And this was, from every outside observer's uh, uh, estimation, not a level playing field in the way this election was conducted. So it's not so much about the degree of corruption or the degree of irregularity or whether it would have changed the outcome or wouldn't have changed the outcome. It's about the responsibility of all the players, all the public servants, of all this, all, all the members of the civil discourse in Serbia, to go ahead and assure that the process is free and open and fair, and then the outcome will be whatever the people decide. That's the important point. Mm -hmm. uh, Ambassador Pult, I think a lot of Amir, a lot of our audience. Um, will think, when they think of Serbia will and, and government change, will think of Otpor and their uh, action against Milosevic. This is an organization that, of course, uh, formally disbanded the year you became ambassador to Serbia. Uh, I have kind of a two-pronged question here. Number one, what really became of those folks who were involved in Otpor? Did a lot of them stay in Serbian politics? And the follow-up question to that is, do you think that there are prospects of another mass mobilization on this level uh, in the near future in Serbia? I remember meeting uh, a number of the former core members and always found them to be uh, very impressive young people who uh, cared a lot about their country and uh, uh, wanted to go ahead and go exactly in the direction that I just mentioned in my previous response. And that is to go ahead and, and, and provide Serbia and the Serbian people that perspective for the future rather than the grievance of the past in order for them to go ahead and achieve what uh, in vast majority numbers, the Serbian people that I had contact with throughout my years there was expressed over and over again, which is the same thing that people around the world want for themselves. They want to have a safe environment, decent employment, uh, a, 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 a family uh, that can function well, where the young people have a, see a future for themselves. And, and uh, of course, stood for so much of that in its work, and the people didn't disappear after the organization dissolved, but simply uh, continued to stay, in many cases, at least in my interaction with them, stayed active in the dialogue in the country to go ahead and bring Serbia to where the Serbian people had said they want to be. Because I think, uh, uh, Francisco, the most important part of all this is it really doesn't matter what Americans think mm -hmm. or what the OSCE thinks or what other Europeans think. It really only matters what the Serbian people want for themselves. And for those of us who want to be friends of the Serbian people, and the American people certainly are friends of the Serbian people, and so are their European neighbors. They want to help them get to where they want to go. And the question is, what are the obstacles in, in that path? And uh, how can we help those people who want to remove those obstacles and allow the Serbian people to go to where they want to go? Mm -hmm. To be sure, that's something I've come to learn a lot uh, over the process of doing this show. Um, and in addition to, to that, it's not just what America wants. A lot of people think very differently than Americans think when it comes to a lot of these political issues. Uh, I want to focus on one of them. 
and unfortunately, this does the, this question does somewhat involve what do Americans think, uh, and that is Kosovo. Uh, my fundamental question here is: on one hand, why does Serbia care so much about keeping Kosovo uh, under its jurisdiction? And on the other hand, the United States chooses not to support many breakaway states, many uh, potential states that have done the same thing that Kosovo has done when it declared independence in 2008. Why does the U.S. and NATO uh, support Kosovo so much? What is the interest uh, in the resolution of this conflict on the part of the Serbians and on the part of the Americans and NATO? I'll answer your question in two ways uh, that, uh, that are the best way I can describe my view of the Kosovo issue, where you have to actually go back to Yugoslavia as a starting point. Uh, the breakup of Yugoslavia was the breakup of all the constituent elements of what formed that state uh, during the Tito era over the many years that it existed. And all the parts of the former uh, Yugoslavia are separated out by virtue of the, the, the forces inside that, that uh, construct to seek a different uh, form, to seek a different status, to seek a different uh, 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 arrangement for their uh, national uh, uh, ambition. Whether it is starting from Slovenia to Croatia to Serbia to uh, to uh, to Montenegro uh, to Kosovo to all the parts that formed the former Yugoslavia, uh, it was the will of those of those people to go ahead and uh, come to a different uh, arrangement for their national future. Now, the important part in all this is, and many of the countries of the former Yugoslavia uh, uh, have realized that ambition already is to, as they were separating, to reintegrate it in the broader Europe. So for as the Slovenians or the Croatians, uh, how important their national borders are to them in relation to their neighbors in the rest of the European Union. Uh, they're meaningless. I used to carry around meaningless in only in the sense that they are not barriers to the movement of people or goods or any or, or uh, the 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 overall uh, relationships within that in the Europe, greater greater European Union context. I used to carry a black and white picture in my pocket while I was ambassador in in, in Serbia and Montenegro and during my beginning of my time there, uh, of the border between Belgium and Luxembourg. And it was a, and I used to pull it out regularly to show the people uh, that border, that, that black and white picture was a, 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 an unpaved country road uh, on which was a small uh, country restaurant, uh, a countryside restaurant. That was the border. There were no signs of any kind of border barriers. There were no signs of any kind of border guards. There was nothing there except two, two countries living side by side, not really caring about the, 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 the physical, the imagined physical barriers between the two because there weren't any. I think that was the ambition of the constituent parts of the former Yugoslavia. And I think that's the way the future of Kosovo in its relationship to Serbia 
should be seen. And that's what I always advocated to my Serbian friends while I was there. Mm -hmm. And uh, on this note of that European system, uh, that borderless system, the Schengen area, and Serbia's aspirations to enter it, um, how much does Kosovo play into that? I know that they've uh, the, a lot of Serbian politicians have said that they would not join the EU unless it conceded on Kosovo being part of Serbia. That's been a red line for many. Uh, but on the other hand, if they were to both be independent, there could be a lot of functional similarities, like you talked about, with border crossings being practically absent. How strong of a factor is Kosovo going to be in eventual EU membership for Serbia if it does happen? It's going to be a critical factor. It's going to be a critical factor because the Europeans rightfully have said that they're not going to import a frozen conflict into the European Union, and, and I think they're right. So in other words, they have made it as a condition of both Kosovo and Serbia entering the European Union. The fact that the differences between the two have to be resolved so that they can become uh, fully integrated <clears throat> members of the European Union once all the conditions for membership have been satisfied. And one of them is, of course, the settlement of this question. <clears throat> you know, once again, uh, one of the things that I used to say when I was and I was there and since departing is that I think it is important for the Serbian uh, authorities as well as for the Kosovo authorities. But let's start with Serbia for a moment because you mentioned them as having put that condition about uh, they they don't want to enter the European Union unless uh, Kosovo uh, the Kosovo independence is not recognized is. Uh, Serbia claims to want to join the European Union, not the European Union to join Serbia. And I, if that sounds a little bit facetious, I don't mean it to be, but that is an important distinction. In other words, the European Union has a set of rules that these members have set for themselves to form this union of countries in which a certain amount of sovereignty is ceded to the overall construct of that organization. And that is where Serbia needs to find itself. That's where Kosovo needs to find itself in order for them to become effective and successful members of the European Union. That's the way they both need to look at this, not in terms of we is our way or the highway for the European Union, because the European Union will be totally successful without Serbia or Kosovo joining if they choose not to meet the European Union requirements. Right. And absolutely, that dis that distinction, I know why you say it might sound facetious, but I, I think a lot of our listeners can understand why that would be so critical for these parties. I want to uh, approach the conclusion of this interview with um, a question about the long-term foreign policy direction of Serbia. Obviously, deep historical ties with Russia that go back centuries. Uh, on the other hand, uh, the deep aspiration for EU membership. In the trajectory of the next few years, do you see uh, Vo uh, Vucic's um, sort of balance between Eastern and Western camps remaining an attempted balance? Or do you see EU membership in the near term? Or do you see a complete, uh, uh, shall we say, alienation from the prospect of EU membership in the near term? What do you think is the trajectory here? Well, uh, I will carefully stay away from any kind of assessment as to 
EU membership future for Serbia or Kosovo that is for our European friends to decide, not for an American to, to, to comment on. But I'll give you an overall response to your question, and that is about Serbia's future. It goes back to what we've already talked about. That is, <clears throat> what do our Serbian friends want? And uh, you, you, it is, in my view, not possible to be a friend of Mr. Putin and what he's doing in Ukraine. And at the same time say, I would like to be a friend of uh, and a member of the European Union and uh, and and all its all the principles and values that the european union stands for or for that matter the transatlantic community stands for the free democratic world stands for <clears throat> the the invasion of, of of a neighbor and and the killing of of, of innocent civilians uh, next door is not a principle or a value that constitutes the the free democratic world and its value community that it represents. So therefore, the Serbian leadership has to make a decision, and ultimately speaking, most importantly, the Serbian people have to make a decision on in, in terms of the people they put into office as to what kind of world they see for themselves for the future. Mm -hmm. And in that context, uh, this, uh, this middle line uh, was one foot in Mr. Putin's camp and uh, one foot in uh, communist China's camp <clears throat> and the third foot, if there was such a thing, uh, somehow in a close and, 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 and value community relationship with the European Union and the United States is not possible. So in other words, either you believe in freedom, democracy, human rights, uh, non-aggression, peaceful coexistence with your neighbors, or you don't. You can't have it both ways. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, our Serbian friends have to make a decision as to what they want to be. If they want to be on Mr. On Mr. Putin's side, that's a choice that they can make. And it has its consequences. If they choose to go ahead and be part of the free democratic world and all the values it stands for, then that is another path. I advocate for them. And I know from my association with the Serbian people, that is the path that is the one that is the most, uh, uh, with the greatest perspective for a better future for all the Serbian people. Mm -hmm. It'll be very fascinating to watch over the subsequent years where that, where their decision and self-determination takes them in that respect. Ambassador Michael Polt is the Arizona State University, is an Arizona State University ambassador in residence. And he also served as the United States ambassador to Estonia, as well as the United States ambassador to Serbia between 2004 and 2007. Ambassador Polt, thank you so much for joining Pindrop today. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. And now it's time for the Pindrop panel. I'm joined as always by my amazing co-producers, Diego. Hello. And Nick. Hi, AJ. So we've got a good country to talk about today in your all's company. Um, since you all have spent a good amount of time researching the Balkans in, in your off time, and it's, I think, an area of interest for, for you guys, and I'm a bit of a Europe guy myself. So I want to start at what's perhaps the most timely, which is these elections in December. They appear to have been rigged. Um, very strong evidence of that. The opposition party has 
invited Ursula von der Leyen in the European Union to probe the elections. It also doesn't seem like there's a whole lot that's going to happen at the moment. Uh, just want to hear you all's takes about this election. What do we see? Uh, I mean, I honestly don't have that much to add on from what Ambassador Polt said in the interview. I think Serbia is at a crossroads where they have to choose whether they want to be a state like Russia or sort of enter into more the free democratic world. Um, you can't do both at once. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens. I mean, we, we there, there were like mass protests um, mm -hmm. on the streets. It'll be interesting to see to what extent this is like, a, like well, like a Serbian spring. I mean, I, I hate to, I don't want to be that annoying yeah. guy who compares every protest to the Arab Spring. Like, I'm not trying to do that, but it, I, it'll it'll be interesting to see what happens. But yeah, well, like Ambassador Polt said, they're at a crossroads. And this is a country that has a precedent for something like that too. When we look at Othpor in the late '90s and 2000, a civic unrest, political organization that created, yeah, the bulldozer revolution, yeah. and actually did succeed in overthrowing a dictator. Now, I'm not saying that Vucic is a dictator, but there is a precedent for that type of political action. Um, Nick, any thoughts? Yeah, uh, well, it's pretty depressing to start off with. Uh, Serbia is a country that had, as we were like just talking about, a pretty strong pro-democracy movement, especially in the early mm -hmm. 2000s. The people who ousted Milosevic, they were when you, when you study East Europe and pro-democracy movements and anti-authoritarianism movements, the anti-Milosevic crowd are like the go-to crystal perfect example that actually inspired people across the post-communist world. They were pioneering things like um, election monitoring to make sure that results were fair. They were like crossing a line that is really hard for a lot of opposition movements to cross where you break out of like the urban young demographic and gain popularity in like the countryside and with older people and with rural people. So it was like a really great successful movement. And it's pretty uh, depressing to watch a lot of their work be undone by a, a new generation of would-be authoritarians. And it's equally depressing too, because I think what you're watching in Serbia right now um, is what you're seeing in places like Georgia Mm -hmm. uh, as well, which is like a small group of political elites um, are kind of throwing away the future of the entire country to maintain their own power. Because already you had the Kosovo issue that was going to be very difficult for um, Serbia to ever enter the European Union with the Kosovo issue unresolved. Um, and now that you've got more or less what seems to be a highly, highly uh, manipulated election result, the, the EU is not going to consider them uh, for membership anytime soon, I think. And Serbia is a relatively poor country compared to EU members. And for a lot of people in the country who wanted a, a brighter future for Serbia, the EU was the path forward. And I think that Vucic has, has thrown that away basically in the past uh, few weeks. So it's very, it's very sad, actually. It is sad. And it, it perplexes me, too, on the level that when you look at what the polls were suggesting, it seemed more likely than not that the SNS was going to be able to remain the largest party in parliament in that there would not be able to be a coalition that could form a government against them. And yet, even though it was still looking like that, they were still willing to make this move. I do think it's a testament to how little Vucic, the SNS, cares about going into the European Union. Before this election, if you would have asked me which country do I think is the most likely to enter the European Union next, Serbia probably would have been near the top of my list, if not oh, the very top. Wouldn't have been near my list, all three lists. <laughs> I, 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 I could have put some. I could have put some money on that happening within a decade or two. Within a decade, um, maybe. I don't know though. Yeah, but I, I don't see that. I, I. It seems very far away after after an incident like this. Um, and I'm 
I think a lot about how this is, to your point, Nick, something that we're seeing in these Eastern European countries. And some of our listeners who are sort of IA oriented like us might be aware of this general idea, but I think Serbia is kind of showcasing it, which is that these are countries that were behind the Iron Curtain and they didn't have these democrat these big democratic institutions that have had the big time to develop and solidify and become important in defining of the country in the same way that the United States did in the same way that most of western europe did and as a result that's how we get situations like poland and hungary where there's a lot of good evidence that democracy is going quite well but it sometimes only takes one leader to kind of shoot it down for the foreseeable future and within those veins, I think this is a good moment to transition towards the EU, because this is also, again, a reason I think that Serbia's odds have just gone down dramatically for being in the European Union for a long time. Germany kind of won out when the Soviet Union collapsed, when the Iron Curtain was torn away, in that they wanted to admit these Eastern Bloc countries on the idea that they were democratic enough and that the EU would be able to influence them in a way to keep them democratic and to keep the union strong. But after what we saw with Poland's previous government before Tusk, Tusk's return, and still in Hungary with Orban, is that that was not always what actually happened, and that a lot of these countries, in fact, were kind of had a, a significant amount of regression and were able to obstruct a lot of what the EU wanted to do. This incident of the Serbian election kind of seems to just indicate that, yeah, the EU might be right to be very cautious and slow about who it admits. But let, let's talk about Kosovo for a second, too. I, I asked Ambassador Polt, he didn't really answer me very straightly on the question of why Serbia cares about Kosovo so much. Um, but I think before this panel, Nick, you had a pretty good ex uh, explanation that made a lot of sense to me that a lot of it just comes down to history and how they felt that they were treated under Yugoslavia. Could you share that? I mean, I think it's less history than more collective historic memory, which is a bit different, right? Mm, I feel enough. like uh, national communities, you know, uh, don't, they rely more on their imagination of history than on the real raw facts that it might be easier for outsiders to see, though obviously those two things are, are pretty highly connected. I mean, Serbians remember the 20th century in many ways, I think, as a period of like disempowerment. Um, you know, the, the, the Serbian community was really brutalized, especially during the Second World War, by sort of Nazi-Croat collaborationists who, you know, the Nazis viewed the Serbians as sort of a lower on like the, the racial purity ladder right. that they imagined. And the Croats were higher, so they were, they were really quite brutal Croat collaborationists who, who fought against Serbians. So that's one piece of their historic memory. I mean, the other bit of it, though, however, is that um, Serbians were demographically speaking, as a raw percentage, the largest community within Yugoslavia. But because of the way Tito constructed the Yugoslav political system, every um, sort of republic or every ethnic group was given roughly similar power. So even though Serbians were the largest demographically speaking, they had the same amount of power as Croats or Slovenes or, or Montenegrins. Um, and then 
Kosovo in the 20th century under Tito, I think, becomes a, a sort of a semi-autonomous province as it steadily right. becomes large, largely um, Albanian majority province. And that strips a little more political power away from Serbs and gives a little more political power to the non-Serb groups within Yugoslavia. So the, the point being that Serbians remember the 20th century in Yugoslavia as, as a period of disempowerment in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And I Kosovo will, I will um, add, interestingly, like uh, at one of Milosevic's most famous uh, speeches, I think it was mm -hmm. in 89, and this be was amid a bunch of this ethnic tension where I, I think some, like, Serbian guy had gotten hit by, like, a police, I don't know, something happened, and he went out to this crowd, and he, he repeated, no yeah. one will beat you again. So it's it kind of draws back to this feeling of being disempowered in the past and not wanting to repeat that. I'll say Milosevic is also just a huge part of the story, that Milosevic arrives... Um, well, he doesn't arrive because he's already a politician, actually. He's a communist when he begins his career. But he gets mm -hmm. big in the late 80s when the state is sort of collapsing in, in a way, when um, it's a time that's rife for ethnic political entrepreneurs to really stir up strong sentiments, to take advantage of those historic collective memory sensitivities and push the population in a more um, radicalized direction in terms of identity politics. There was a feeling in the West throughout the Yugoslav wars in the 90s, where it's where it's, uh, the idea was, oh, you know, these communities have been fighting each other for centuries. There's nothing we could do. This was an inevitable conflict. And that's partially true because there had been a lot of violence, historically speaking, in, in the Balkans. But there had also been long periods of peace and coexistence. Uh, the idea that these were like inevitable conflicts, I don't really think is true. I think they happen because of particular political decisions made either by Tito in terms of maybe his solution to balancing ethnic political power in Yugoslavia mm -hmm. wasn't perfect, but more so by elites like Milosevic, who took advantage of that and grabbed on to these ideas that are naturally really powerful ideas, things about ethnic mm -hmm. claim, things about feeling um, humiliated or emasculated, ethnically speaking. And he, he pushed those in a more radical, violent direction. So there were yeah. specific choices made by specific political actors. Um, and, and pair that with the actual history, things like Kosovo become very, very sensitive. Kosovo, uh, just to put more meat on the bones of this, um, you know, in, in terms of the actual facts, Kosovo historically is another one of these ethnically mixed regions, partially Albanian, partially Serbian. Um, you know, there, there are very important moments in Serbian history that happened in Kosovo, important monasteries, et cetera, et cetera. All the kind of things that oftentimes serve to create a location as sacred in the minds of a community. And then when you sort of take that away from them as they perceive it, that can be very, very sensitive. So even though Kosovo is like 98, 99% ethnic Albanian, it's a very small community of, of, of Serbians in mm -hmm. Kosovo. Um, it becomes like a really politically sensitive issue. Um, for historical reasons, for political reasons, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, of all those historical reasons, the Battle of Kosovo, uh, from the Ottomans, that is. And I would have expected the European Union to be a potential major remedy here, right? Because whichever situation it ends up being, whether it's Kosovo remains an autonomous area within Serbia, whether they are independent, there's no longer an effective border for people. And a lot of those uh, ideas and characteristics that we associate countries having separate would no longer be separate. Same currency, free transportation of people and goods. Of course, the problem is the EU would want to make sure that that was resolved before any admission. And the other problem is after this recent election and after Serbia's proclaimed neutrality in the Ukrainian invasion of Ukraine, that seems very distant. So I have to wonder how things are going to develop here. 
because I don't think that we're going to see any agreed upon solution in the near term. It doesn't seem like Serbia is willing to back down. I don't think NATO is willing to back down. They recognize this as an independent state. They would have to treat a Serbian invasion of Kosovo, at least nominally speaking, on the same level of a Russian invasion of Ukraine, albeit different mm-hmm. power disparities there. Yeah. But it would be treated as an interstate invasion. So it feels like we're kind of going to be stuck in a limbo for a while. But also, this is a problem that feels like it, it can't be stuck in a limbo forever. It's an, a bit of an escalating limbo um, as well. Mm. Um, not to the point where I'm not like worried right now that there's going to be a war or anything. But I mean, it's um, th- th- we, we spoke about the, the license plate disputes, for example, which mm-hmm. um, raised a lot of tensions. Basically, uh, Kosovo said, if you had a license plate that was a Serbian license plate from before independence, you can't have that anymore. And that produced a lot of ethnic tensions. But the main thing was there were these elections. Um, it was, I believe, parliamentary elections that happened last uh, spring. Um, I think it was in April. And, I think you're um, thinking of the mayoral elections in Kosovo? Or Yes, the mayoral elections, I believe, in April. Um, and the Serbian parties um, boycotted the elections because they wanted more autonomy and these types of things that have been these sort of older grievances. Um, so then... Their parties didn't run, so then a bunch of like random Albanian guys who normally wouldn't have won in those regions won. Um, (laughs) And then Kosovo decided to install them anyways, even though I think like 3.5% of the population voted or something. In some some jurisdictions, it was that low. Yeah, it was like very, very low. I think even the the US and the EU condemned Kosovo um, installing the mayors um, into those cities. But they installed them, and there were some riots um, in October, I think, or September. Some armed Serbian guys like got holed up in an Orthodox monastery and clashed with police. Um, and then later on, um, when they were physically installing the Albanian mayors, they brought NATO peacekeepers to do it, and they were kind mm-hmm. of attacked by a mob, and like twenty five percent of them got, or twenty five of them got injured. So. I, I mean, I don't think it's quite, a, and I, I believe the Serbian army was mobilizing along the yeah. Kosovo's border. So again, I I don't think it's even though things have escalated, I'm not like like going to be like a doomer, like oh my god, there's going to be a war soon or anything. But well, because it's, the it's scary, the it's definitely not. It's not good, you know. Yeah, and it's worth noting the last major escalation was like a half a year ago. So for the past six months, yeah. it doesn't seem like things have gotten worse. And there was a brief moment where the U.S. was warning Kosovo that they were seeing an unprecedented troop buildup by Serbian yeah. forces on the border, and that didn't happen. And those forces have gone away. So it, it was escalating. It appears things have simmered down, but they've only been simmering for so long. Well, in my experience with these types of conflicts, these types of events end up coming back. Um, it always will. So we'll see what happens. Mm-hmm. I, I want to end briefly on just the question of the long-term future of Serbia. Ambassador Poltz didn't want to comment on this very much, understandably so. Um, but is this long-term foreign policy balance that we've seen Vucic kind of walking between Russia and China on the one hand the European Union, on the other hand, where do we see it going? On the one hand, he pays his lip service to the EU, weans himself off of uh, Russian oil imports and gas imports. On the other hand, increasing cooperation with China, signs a free trade mm-hmm. deal, and yeah. 
it takes no concern over rigged elections, which we should specify. Mm -hmm. It's not clear whether Vucic himself or his party was involved in these in, in these uh, irregularities. It's only clear that there were these irregularities happening. Although one might yeah. say it's hard to imagine some yeah. people in power were not aware <laughs> yeah. for this to be able to occur. Well, I'm yeah. going to compare him with um, Turkey, which I think okay. is also trying to do a similar balancing act. And see, Turkey, I believe, is able to do this to a much greater extent because they're more strategically important. Mm -hmm. um, they're along very strategic straits. They're in NATO um, at a time when certain NATO votes are very important. Um, whereas, and, and they're like a significant player um, in the Middle East as well. Um, whereas, I, I don't think, Ser I think Serbia lacks the strategic importance um, to be able to pull off the same balancing act that Erdogan does and have that be sustainable. Because, uh, I mean, Ambassador Poltz, um put it well when he said, yeah, the EU doesn't need Serbia. Serbia needs Absolutely. the EU more than the EU needs Serbia. Um, so the EU isn't going to have to, like in the way that NATO had to kind of bend over backward to Turkey to grant what I think were BS concessions on the PKK for political gain before the elections, the EU is not going to do that for Serbia. They're going to be like, okay, bye. If it if it becomes too difficult, they're not going to bend over backwards to get Serbia in the EU. Yeah. So I don't think this balancing act is um, as sustainable for Serbia as it is for Turkey. And even for Turkey, it's it's causing problems. I'll I'll take up the baton of being like a more intense Serbia doomer because I I'm I. I in doing research for this episode, I, I grew much more concerned. I haven't been following the Balkans very closely recently, um, but I think the situation there vis-a-vis -vis democracy is much worse than a mm -hmm. lot of people uh, would have thought. I mean, you recently had an, an incident where a member of the opposition party made a social media post basically um, commemorating war crimes committed against Albanians by the, the Serbian army in the 1990s, apologizing for them as a Serbian. And the response was that he was arrested and he was beaten so brutally, not by local police even, but by the secret service of Serbia. These are people who are relatively well connected to the, the president. The secret service beat him so badly that he's partially paralyzed and he remains facing charges, by the way. So this is the environment we're talking about in Serbia. I think that um, I'm uh, there's a good risk. I, I think that what often can happen in these situations with a, a rigged election is that it's not that the EU loses interest. It's that over time, it becomes more severe to the point where the EU starts to punish you. And this is sort of what happened in Belarus after 2020, that the fraud was so intense and the crackdown was so vicious that the EU punished Belarus and it drove Belarus in a, in a more Russian friendly direction, which I think is a distinct possibility here. Like if you can't really go to Europe because Europe isn't going to be okay with the fact that you're rigging elections and brutally assaulting opposition parliament uh, members, you're going to go to China and Russia. Um, so I'm, I, I think I'm, I, maybe I'm in agreement with Diego about this. I don't think there's much of a European future here unless the government changes course relatively soon. If I can try and be the medium between you two guys, I, I'd like to highlight, first of all, that although this is horrible, what has happened to this, this uh, opposition figure, he's the head of the Serbian Republican Party, which has basically never held power at any level. So the idea that this was done for political reasons of trying to suppress the opposition, there, there's not. A, I would argue there's not a lot of strength there. It does say a lot about the secret police and their lack of respect for human rights. Uh, on the other hand, uh, a party that's never had a seat in parliament. So it does say some bad things. It also might attest to it not being particularly politically motivated in terms of being afraid of the power of this opposition figure. Uh, 
And you have concerns about media freedoms. I agree with a lot of what you're saying, that Europe's not going to be okay with this. On the other hand, it's more reliant on Europe than a lot of other countries are in its position. Its biggest trading partner is the EU. And so I foresee something relatively similar to the status quo continuing for the meantime. Mm. They are going to want to push themselves closer to China and Russia because they know that they're not going to be able to progress as far as they want with the EU. On the other hand, until they manage to substitute what they're getting with the EU for stuff that they get from uh, Eastern countries or other countries that are not so fussed about these human rights matters, until then, they're going to be forced to hold themselves back at least a little bit because of that economic pressure. That's I'll, my I'll, I'll agree with you a little bit, AJ, um, in that uh, China has actually not been very good at expanding economic influence and activity into East Europe. Like through Belt and Road and some other programs, they've been trying to do this for a long time. And compared to other places like Central Asia, there hasn't been a huge success in getting Chinese um, economic influence and economic power into East Europe. So maybe maybe on the economic front, you make a good point there. All right. And on the idea that I made a good point, I think that's a good <laughs> time to wrap it up. This has been a great discussion. Nick, Diego, thank you guys so much. Now it's going to be time to spin the globe. And our pin has dropped on. Well, it's to be determined. Nick, Diego, and I are each working on our own projects with Pin Drop, and we're willing to wait and see which one seems to be progressed along the most when it's time for us to come out with a new episode. Don't think that I've forgotten that we originally said that our next episode would be Kurdistan. That is still very much in the works, but that's an episode that Nick and Diego are particularly passionate about and want to get as perfect as they can. So expect to hear from us more soon. Uh, one more note, Pindrop is a small project that Nick, Diego, and I enjoy running, but we have been steadily growing over these past months. We would love to be able to devote more time and effort to Pindrop, but without it growing bigger, we just can't do that with our other commitments. So if you would like to help Pindrop grow and produce more content and help us three out, there are a few things you could do. First and foremost is word of mouth. Be that through conversations with friends and family who you know are interested in international news or through social media. If you're watching on YouTube, leaving a comment and liking do wonders for our viewership through the algorithm. Likewise, reviewing Pindrop on your podcast app would help us immensely. Regardless of how or if you help Pindrop grow, thanks for your support, even if it's just listening or watching. Also, we're in the process of deciding our fan-chosen episode for this season. So make sure to listen to this episode on Spotify because there in the episode, uh, as it appears on the app, you will see a poll with the nominations we have received. Go ahead and cast your vote for what you want our fan-chosen episode to be. Now, if you want to make sure that new episodes of Pindrop are always downloaded to your device automatically, make sure to follow or subscribe on your podcast app. If you're watching on YouTube, please consider subscribing to our channel and ringing the bell to hear notifications whenever we publish new content. Our guest today was Michael Polt. Our panelists and the three co-producers of Pindrop World News were myself, Francisco A.J. Camacho, Diego Austin, and Nicholas Castillo. Pindrop World News was created by Ian Kearns.
Thank you.